Hi, you're listening to the Mirum Talks podcast coming to you from the Mirum Stockholm office. We're talking with inspiring people from different backgrounds, sharing their opinions about change and new perspectives within the digital industry. So for this episode of Mirum Talks, we are talking to Brie Groff, a speaker and change agent, among other talents that you will hear about in this conversation. She will also talk about her past experience and how they have become connected dots in her passion for enabling human and organizational growth. We're recording this actually uh, long distance, and uh, it's going to be quite interesting to see if if the sound and everything is uh, as good as the other podcast that we have done. But we know you are in professional hands, so we're going to be trying to be as professional as possible. Yes, I, I am in a fancy audio room in New York, so I'm yeah. hoping it all goes smoothly. Yeah. So kind of just to to kick it off and maybe you giving some a little bit of background information but one thing that I'm I'm interested in is um what is it that you know now that you wished that you knew when you started your career oh. is, is there like one thing that you have kind of ah why didn't I know this <laughs> I wish I knew that everyone makes up their career step by step. And honestly, that I enjoyed my earlier career a bit. I had really fun, interesting, diverse set of experiences. And see, my early and mid-20s, I was an actor for a year in LA. I taught high school physics. I worked at eHarmony for a while in their R&D lab. And I had so much anxiety about what my career would be. And in fact, you know, looking back, it's all those, the diversity of your experiences that I think makes you a richer human being. And somehow I found my way into transformation, organizational design and change consulting. And it, it sounds, you know, it could, Sometimes I'm, I might look back and think that all of those experiences didn't add up to what I'm doing now, but actually it was teaching that allows me to now stand on a stage and facilitate a group of executives and uh, even working at eHarmony and reading body language and facial expressions is enormously helpful with consulting and understanding what my clients are going through. And so it all sort of adds up. And It's easy to, in hindsight, weave a beautiful narrative of a career, but in the moment as I was going through it, it felt uh, very uh, unsettling <laughs> to not know, oh, what job do I take? What do I focus on? When do I go to grad school? What do I do? And uh, I wish, I don't I wish I had enjoyed that a bit more. Yeah. So what is the learning then? Is, is that that if I test, test out as many things, learn as many skills as you can, and then 
as your kind of experiences both with people and like knowledge that all that will come together at some point anyway. I think that's it, that it's okay to prototype a career, just like you might prototype anything in business, uh, to prototype a life, try different living in different cities, uh, and then it does somehow come together. I'm just curious about your acting career. <laughs> <laughs> There's not that much to be curious about. It was largely unsuccessful, although I don't regret it for a minute. Um, but uh, it was largely like student films and and short films that are collecting dust in somebody's basement now. Yeah. But what I learned from it was performance art which is, and now I do a ton of public speaking and that's, that's what that is. So to learn how to use my body and my voice and to respond authentically, all of those things serve me really well today. And, and back in the day, it was just fun to be 23 and an actor in LA and wildly poor and (laughs) hanging out on the beach with my hipster friends on a Tuesday. All of that was great. Yeah, I could imagine. <laughs> and do you feel there was a common denominator between all the, you know, those choices that you made from deciding that you wanted to be an actor, then to teaching, then uh, to move to uh, uh, working in a more corporate companies, and then to, you know, even uh, participate to talks and conferences? Was there, you know, always? Um, yeah, a common denominator that would push you towards making that decision? Yeah, I think the common denominator always, uh, maybe this sounds cliched, but uh, two things, perhaps two common denominators. One was just an interest in how people grow and learn. And so that was my interest in teaching. And I taught for many years. I was also an instructional coach. I helped other teachers evolve their practice I worked in innovation for a while, and innovation as a consultant is largely about helping your clients be bolder, more ambitious, creative versions of themselves. And and still, you know, consulting and transformation consulting—that's still what that is—is is raising the ambitions of leaders and for what they can accomplish. And so that thread of you know, starting with the very first physics class that I ever taught was about. How can I help these 20 students in front of me raise their ambitions for what they can learn and do uh, in the classroom? But now I just do that for companies. So that was one thread, just a real, uh, I don't know, like a real simple belief in people and what they can become and an interest in how to coach people to that. And then I think the second thread is I've just always loved performance arts. And in addition to acting, I've also done uh, ballet and jazz and performed in a a dance company. I also take improv classes at the Upright Citizens Brigade in New York. I just love the performance art of it and how you can stand on a stage and move people to change their mindsets, to spark a new behavior, to feel something all in synchrony. I just, I love that. And I, and personally, when I'm on a stage, I feel so, uh, 
I don't know, I feel like the most authentic version of myself. And I know most people hate public speaking, but there's something about it that I find really freeing. And it's such a powerful tool to reach large audiences. And so I'm just, in addition to doing it myself, really passionate about helping other people find their voice on a stage. So in um, in the work that you do today, where are you today? I think uh, last time we spoke, you were in another place. Yeah. Uh, so today I am at SY Partners, um, both as my job and physically in their audio room, um, in our <laughs> audio room. Uh, yeah. So I, I've had a few career changes. I uh, was a few careers back. Well, you've heard all of my um, sort of crazier careers. A few careers back, I was an innovation consultant Then uh, I did organizational design and change consulting at Nobel, where I served as the CEO. Uh, and then uh, recently was interested in, in working at, uh, at a bit bigger of an organization. It's just a, um, Nobel was fantastic and continues to be a brilliant company um, that lives on. And so I was looking for... Um, a bit different size of organization, and that's when I found the kindred spirits at, at well, SYP, we would say, uh, SY Partners, and I started here in late April. What is what is your role in in that sense? Yeah, I am a principal here, which means I I get to do all the things that I love, uh, and they pay me for it, which is even better. So I do a lot of business development, meeting new people, uh, new leaders, and thinking about how we might be able to support them, leading client teams, um, our client teams here in service of those leaders. I do a lot of uh, speaking, as I mentioned, and and things like podcasts, just yeah. to be out in the world and, and sharing what I've learned about organizational change. Uh, and then just supporting the business as well on the leadership team and and growing our own organization. Yeah, and you are based in New York, or do you have? Is there mm -hmm. is kind of a network? Do you have other offices in other places? So? Yeah, I'm based in New York. We have another office in San Francisco. We actually have, I think, about 25 people in Abu Dhabi um, right now doing some work there. Um, and then we also do some work in Europe as well. So, so sometimes we'll pop across the pond. So in, in uh, well, I think you've been, been into this, what drives you at work? I guess it's, it's the development of people and potential and kind of facilitating that, that you mentioned before, both are in grads to teaching and performing arts. And that's, that's, that's what you do today as well. Or would you describe mm -hmm. it? in any other words no i think that's i think that's it um which makes me feel lucky because i think i've now i've somehow found my way into being able to do what i love for a living uh, but yeah sy partners it's we call ourselves a transformation consultancy which is really not a thing to say at a cocktail party because it makes people scratch mm -hmm. their heads Um, mm. if I, if a cab driver asks me, I say, I do management consulting and then the conversation ends. Um, mm. uh, but if, if I want to talk about it, it's, uh, transformation consulting is, 
it's helping companies and particularly the leaders and uh, the CEO transform their company into usually at some sort of a time of flux. So into the next and ideally better version of itself. So this could be a really large organization that was uh, was great at some point in time and is now, I don't know, something's happened. It's getting eaten up by startups or it's lost its focus on its customer. And so what is that return to greatness? Um, it could also be with a new CEO in place, a new vision or new aspiration for the company. It could be a merger or an acquisition and and setting a course for what those two companies together can be. It is always at the level, like the very highest level of purpose and narrative to start. So what is it that we're all doing here in service of what? And then what I love about SYP and also just a personal passion of mine is that then we quickly think about how do those nice words on a piece of paper translate into the lived experience of employees so that on a daily basis, people are making decisions in different ways, that they're communicating in different ways, that they're actually showing up differently to the world and not just, um, oh, we seem to have a new purpose statement and (laughs) carry on. Nobody nobody likes that. There's enough... uh, you know, mediocrity and purpose statements in the world. So we, we like to to make it real. And lots of times that's through um, big cultural events or these, um, and are the, the people uh, who are, I guess we're all creative, but the designers in SYP are just so brilliant in thinking about how to bring um, new messages in an organization to life so that people really feel like, oh, something is going to be different here. So we, we shy away from like uh, too many PowerPoints and try and make it all experiential. Well, I could, I, could, I could kind of imagine how that could be. But in regards to when you, when you start meeting with like a new client or what's kind of the starting point of your conversation? Where, where, where do you start to kind of ask questions to understand where they are at because it can be like just in in our business it's if i can translate it into ah so here's here's the brief there is always the like the conversation the understanding the kind of investigation actually defining what are the is the brief right yeah (laughs) is that really the issues that they're having that that they're talking about having or there's this you know, like keeping both hands securely on the on the PowerPoint, but getting behind that PowerPoint. Mm-hmm. How do you how do you do that? Um, so, in some ways, we're spoiled in that we work uh, usually with the most senior executives, CEO, or sometimes a CMO or chief people officer. So it's it's helpful at that level. Uh, to have those conversations. So it's usually those leaders that are having the, for lack of a better term, existential crisis uh, yeah. of their company, that those most senior leaders are most aware that businesses are really fragile and because uh, you know, they see the numbers and they can see the trends in their industries. So at that level, we're 
normally lucky enough to be speaking to people who who really want a partner in that existential crisis. It makes it sound so dire. It's really not. There's there's actually a ton of hope and aspiration. Um, but we are lucky that that usually um, when people come to us, it's because they want to rethink the the highest level purpose of their company or the narrative of their company, mm. by which I mean, what's the story that employees and consumers tell about the company? So if you were to say Starbucks, what are they about? Uh, that Starbucks, which is a, a longstanding client of ours, their transition was from, oh, we have lots of stores, retail, we sell CDs back in the day, to a real return to a focus on coffee and the art of coffee and the quality of the coffee and equipping the store managers and baristas with really understanding what it is that we're serving, where it comes from. And so that transition is is all about thinking of Starbucks as a retail coffee shop where you stop in to uh, an expert, uh, perhaps the world's best expert on coffee and supplying the world with it. And so that's a it's a transition in how people think about the company, which has implications both. Well, first for employees and thinking about it differently, and then ultimately for consumers. So um, all to say, we are very fortunate in in working with those CEOs and leaders who want to change, um, or maybe not even change, but like rekindle the DNA of their yeah. company. So most of the time, it would be those um, CEOs and senior managers that would contact you guys and with an issue, right? Yeah, it could be an issue or it could be simply a hope. So sometimes it's a new CEO in place mm -hmm. and not that every new CEO needs to shake things up, but a lot of times mm -hmm. is, is natural and a new leader will want to, to yeah. state some new ambition for the future. So um, it could also be a company that's doing fine, but is also, like, not that anyone's bored, but like getting, you know, like we're doing fine, things are great, but given that things are great, what's the next chapter for our yeah. company? What could be better or improved? Yeah, absolutely. And so our very favorite leaders are the ones that balance this, uh, we frequently use the term aspiration and empathy, so an aspiration mm -hmm. for the future. And we see a lot of our roles building that aspiration, helping those leaders to think bolder and be braver, because it just takes a ton of bravery at that level. And then with a mix of empathy, though, for their people, for how hard it is to change with um And with, frankly, too, some resistance to change internally, because all, all sorts of transformation will drudge up the very human emotions of what are, what are we doing? Why are we changing? Things were fine. Uh, and not everywhere, but it's, it's empathy for the very human process yeah. of getting uh, thousands, tens of thousands of, or more people to change how they think and what they do. So... That's the fun part. 
Yeah, and actually, it's um, interesting that you mentioned resistance because that's where I wanted to go as well. Um, because with um, the other people we talked to, it's uh, a recurring topic. But it was kind of different because in the way they would work with their clients, resistance would most of the time always come from some part of the company. And it could also come from senior managers as well who were, uh, you know, seeking help from those organizations. So I'm wondering, how do you guys face resistance with your clients? And how do you solve that? So I should say, resistance is one of my favorite topics. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So I'll... I actually have a handy framework on it, which I'm happy to share. But uh, first, to answer your question, resistance looks, it manifests differently uh, in leaders versus um, uh, employees. At the leadership level, it's it's not so much... So the the key difference is who's making the decisions Mm. about change. So no one likes to be changed. Sometimes people like to change, and that's a key difference. So if you think of if you were to move your home or apartment, there's a ton of change that comes with that. But if you made the decision because you think that there's a better version of your life ahead in this new city or place to live, then you go through all of the change of changing your grocery store and where you get your hair cut and you pack up and you spend a bunch of money to do it. And so there's humans can withstand a ton of change if they see the value in it. And if they feel that, well, one, that that's, it's in service of a better future. And two, that's all made easier if you got to make the decision. So from an employee's perspective, frequently they don't get to make the decision about the future of the company. But they can be engaged in the better version of the future. And so that's where a lot of our work comes in with the narrative and storytelling and creating experiences that help people see this better future and get on board with all the bumpiness of change. At the leader level, frequently leaders are involved in the decision making. So it's not so much a, hey, what are you doing to me sort of situation. Mm-hmm. It's really supporting the leaders in raising their ambition and mm-hmm. um, just being brave because it is really, it's just really scary at the top sometimes. Like no one has the answers. You can ask a million experts and mm-hmm. do industry studies of what's changing and still no everybody's just making it up and and which is why it can be helpful to have a partner in the process and that's where we see our role in in supporting these leaders in being brave um in the resistance coming not from uh, i don't want to do this, this is a bad idea but the resistance coming much more internally from like what happens if I make this bold move and it goes wrong? Um, what happens if I've missed a trend in the industry? What happens if I say we'll do this thing? Maybe it includes layoffs and all my people revolt. It it simply just takes sort of superhuman bravery to make decisions at that level, and that's where we support. Is there any type of resistance that is, is harder to 
to come to come over or to uh, what is what is like what's the worst type of <laughs> of resistance that is is that the everything is actually worse on the other side because I, I guess not everything needs to be just great on the other side as well or, yeah and it it won't be uh, it just has to be a better version of the future that's worth fighting for yeah. uh, the the hardest kind of resistance is where I see industry change so it's not just change for the company which feels like we can decide to change or not but it's actually the industry is changing in a way that is not ever going back so yeah. we see this you know every everyone and their mother has undergone digital transformation in, in every industry that's also that's we're never going back to fax machines it, this is one directional other industry changes um or even like e-commerce, for example, there's still huge room for brick and mortar stores and, and physical retail, but still in online shopping, it's just not going away. So it's one directional. So when we see those kind of industry changes um, with people who have spent a career in the previous version, that's where it can be really hard. Um, because it's, it's very much a process of loss of understanding that the career you built based on some technology, based on some way of doing things is, uh, that that career that you should be proud of. And it's important to learn and adapt to the next thing. So the, the way that I, the framework that I mentioned, the way that I've broken down resistance as I've seen it is in terms of loss. So people Mm. aren't normally resisting change. They're resisting some kind of loss associated with that change Mm. with those losses being, if I remember my own framework here, loss of control, uh, pride in your work, loss of narrative. When you said, oh, this is how we do it for so long. And all of a sudden you have to say, oh, just kidding. Now this is how we do it. Mm. Loss of time because transformation takes so much time. And frequently it's something that's done uh, in addition to people's day jobs. Uh, A loss of competence and understanding, uh, learning new skills so that you can operate in this new normal and then finally, a loss of familiarity and just a sense of being able to predict the future of not only your industry or your company, but of your role, what, what your job is going to look like a year or a few years from now. And you add up all of those losses together and you get one sticky pile of resistance. Mm. It's really um, interesting that you mention um, the loss part because there is actually a saying in French that says, translated, um, you know what you lose, but you don't know uh, what you win. And mm. it's something that I've came across quite often within uh, work culture in France because it's the main reason why most of companies in France and even, you know, when you look at employees don't want to change because they don't know what they're going to move to. Mm-hmm. And so they'd rather 
stay with what they have, even though it's not perfect, rather than taking the risk of changing it and have something that might be better, but they don't know for sure that it is going to be better. Yeah, I love that phrase. I've never heard it. And now I need to carry that around with me. So thank yeah. you for, for sharing that. Yeah. How, how does it sound in French? Uh, so it's, uh, on sait ce qu'on perd, mais on ne sait pas ce qu'on gagne. <laughs> Good <Wonderful>. luck. <laughs> You'll have to teach me how to say that in French. Then. Um, yeah, I'll have to, <laughs> I'll have to practice. Yeah. That's brilliant. And so very, so very true, which is why in a lot of our work, Leaders are, of course, interested in what are the things that we need to do to change? What are the task forces that we need to put together and the policies that we need to change and all of this? But so much of the change is the heart and the narrative of helping people see a vision of what they may gain, bringing that to life in a way that feels not just like, oh, those were some fluffy words, but, oh, I could see the picture of my new daily life this way. I'm going to talk to these people more. We're going to have meetings about this. I'm going to be on this new kind of project to paint the picture of what that newer future could be. And at the same time, I always advocate for a real proper saying goodbye to what was because just like if you know, someone you love passes away you have a funeral it's it's and, and not that we need to have a funeral for all of the lost industries in our world but a way to say that the past whatever it was whether it was a way of doing something a technology a strategic focus whatever it is that's going away it's nice to be able to say Uh, to honor what that was. Um, in the case of a new technology, um, I actually had someone reach out to me just yesterday uh, who had heard me speak. And she said she works in an IT department at a large financial institution and they're uh, sunsetting, uh, killing off one of their technologies And she had paid special attention to honoring, which sounds so silly for technology, but honoring what that technology had done for their company for so long mm -hmm. and then saying farewell to it because there were a lot of people in the company that were very attached to that technology that had used it for years, many years in their career that were comfortable with it, felt like it worked just fine. And it can be helpful sometimes to say, put a bookend on that, that this technology got us to today, now, um, thank you, technology, and now here's a vision of the future for how this new technology can potentially make our life better. Yeah. But all of it's a very emotional process, really. Yeah, absolutely. So is there anyone, <clears throat> any of the can be former clients, customers, or that you work with today, or that you just read about where you you feel that this is a company, an organization that seems like they have done it like the right way, or they, they are in a good position uh, moving ahead. Is there any kind of benchmark when, when you think about, ah, that would, that would, that's probably an interesting company to understand how, how they work? 
Yeah. Uh, so I'll, well, continue the example of Starbucks since I started on it. Starbucks has done a fantastic job of, of envisioning a new future, but also making it a reality in a very visceral way for employees. So just to your point, Melanie, not when people don't know what they're gaining, uh, of course, it can be very hard to get people on board with that. One of the brilliant things that they did is they convened all I'm going to get this number wrong, but like 8,000, I think at the time, store managers to learn about the coffee growing process. And I just thought this was so brilliant because, well, one, it costs a lot of money. It was a huge investment, but it was a statement to say, not only are we going to change our strategic focus to, well, refocus on on coffee, the art of growing and sharing coffee with the world, but we are going to put our money where our mouth is and our um, our time and effort, in addition to money, and give all store managers the experience of holding coffee beans in their hand, raking it on a floor so that it can dry in the sun. Creating that experience for people was just ten million times more powerful than if they had sent out internally some kind of memo or mm-hmm. even a beautifully designed artifact saying, here's our new purpose. And mm-hmm. you know, people read that and say, sure. But when Starbucks realized that uh, if you'd asked a barista, uh, where does coffee come from? How does it grow? And some of them didn't know. They realized, oh, I, like that's a problem. If we're going to be, if we're going to focus our, our efforts on, on, on coffee and the coffee growing experience and, and sharing it with the world, then people need to know where it comes from. And in many ways, it was like the simplest of solutions. Like, what do we do? Well, I guess we just get people together and share and give them the experience of holding coffee beans. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what they did. And so that all of those store managers could go back to their stores and then share that with their employees as well. Mm-hmm. And, uh, in a really powerful experience that just never, it just never would have, it never would have taken hold in, in a less ambitious experience or with a less ambitious leader. I could imagine that, as you said before, like it takes someone to be brave and maybe also just as simple as actually making them experience something for the first time, because I guess you can read so many books about the history of coffee, like yeah. it's produced, the different sorts, uh, the different ways of actually going about uh, preparing for the coffee, the different machines, and all of that is not really maybe inspirational. It's not moving as much. Yeah, it's not. There's there's a great story. I want to say this was from Chip and Dan Heath's book. Switch, mm-hmm. um, which talks about uh, changing behavior. There's a great anecdote about a middle manager in a large manufacturing organization who realized that all of their plants were sourcing their work gloves from different vendors. 
And he started to look into all of the pricing of the different vendors for these thousands of pairs of gloves and realized that there could be huge cost savings if they streamlined procurement. So he put together an Excel and a PowerPoint and shared it with leadership. And halfway through, they seemed to lose interest and nothing came of his proposal. So in the next opportunity he had with the leadership team, he put on the boardroom table a pair, each different pair of gloves that was sourced from a different vendor with the price tags attached. And these leaders walked into a heap of uh, maybe 100 plus different pairs of gloves where you could pick up two different pairs, one uh, which were identical. One had the price tag of, I don't know, uh, $2.99 and one was $5.79. And they could see that they were paying two different prices for the same pairs of gloves. And and doing that, you know, hundreds of different times across their plants. And that got people to listen. Just the, the experience of seeing it, it's, it's like an experience that hits you in the gut. And when you're holding physically an example of what's going wrong and what could be better, it's just a much different uh, it's a much different emotional response than looking at a spreadsheet. So I tell that story just as another example of how leaders can think about if they want to change behaviors or mindsets, what are the experiences that you can give people that hit them in the gut in that way, above and beyond a beautiful keynote or uh, a new strategic five-point plan? Yeah, that makes total sense. There was, um, now I can't remember, was it one and a half year ago about that when you were in Stockholm? There was, mm-hmm. there's one case that you talked about, Etsy, which uh, I think is, is still, well, it, it hasn't left my mind uh, since then, since there's one of these, one of these concepts of uh, the changing modern kind of organizational learning organization is this fail fail fast kind of mm-hmm. and uh, the the case with the etsy that you talked about was really about how to celebrate those failures in an organization yeah which which seems like it was a fantastic story uh, where they actually had the kind of an award show that's right well, for the for the best failure of the year, and people had to kind of like became something, maybe not sought after, but something that people were not uh, afraid of of uh, exposing their um, their failures. Mm-hmm. How do you how do you how do you view that case like one and one and a half year later, or that kind of? Yeah, both attitude and, and maybe also kind of transparency within the organization. Is that something that you've seen grown or is that something, has it become like an, a new normal or is it, was that something of that period where uh, that was something people celebrated? Yeah, I think it's, I love that story. And you know, what you're referencing, I believe, is the the failure award. Um at which they give out a three-armed sweater, exactly. which is just perfect 
for Etsy and hilarious. And I actually was just in touch with the CTO of Etsy and he said that they still do this. Uh, I was inquiring if, if it was still a practice and, um, and he said yes. And what I love about that, not only this award, uh, but their habit internally of making a practice of sharing failure. So the award is of all the failures that were shared throughout the year, which one had the greatest learning? And so if Etsy's site is down or there's some sort of bug, the engineers take make the, they have the practice of writing up, here's what went wrong, um, here's what we could have done uh, better, here's what you should do in the future to avoid the same thing. I still firmly believe that the companies that learn the fastest outperform. Uh, like Your speed of learning is at least as important as speed to market and, and all of those other things. Because if you can imagine two companies, one in which has these kind of built-in mechanisms for learning from failure and rewarding it, and one in which they make the same mistake every few months because people are too shy or embarrassed or it's not culturally normal to talk about your failures. It's the one that shares and learns. Etsy will never make those mistakes again. Not even mistakes, I'd call them. It's just like going about your business and figuring out what works and what doesn't work. So I, uh, so the practice, yes, the practice is still going strong. I have yet to see many other companies adopt something like this. Although certainly, uh, you know, embrace your failure mindset is something that's very popular in business pop culture. Yeah. Um, but I think the more, the more that companies adopt things, even simple practices like retrospectives, what went well, what didn't go well. And let's normalize that I think is a, a really great thing. And also, it takes down some of the business guys of, oh, we have to be all buttoned up and have all the answers and have it all look nice and allows for employees and also for the leaders to be a bit more authentic. And um, I guess on a more personal note, was there like a failure that you experienced uh, within uh, I don't know, your personal life or your career that you, you know, when looking back, you see as a blessing? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, let me, so one, ex the first one that comes to mind, I was the head of innovation at, within a school when mm -hmm. I was maybe 28 years old, something like that. And This was also at the time that I started my master's in organizational learning and change because I thought, oh, no, I don't know what I'm doing. And I certainly other people know more about this than I do, which is evidenced uh, by the story. We <laughs> we were we um, so myself, head of innovation and our dean of studies were had this we had this idea for a January term for our middle schoolers. The January term would be they, they take the month of January, not do the normal curriculum work, and instead do a project-based sprint mm -hmm. focused on a student's area of passion. 
And this is an example of, to me, this did and still makes perfect sense. And I think this is where the field of education should go. But it was a radical departure from the very meticulously curated curriculum that teachers had done year in and year out, some teachers for their 40-year career, and a departure from just the concept of school as we know it. So it was my job to put together this presentation announcing this January J-term And I stood up in front of all of the middle school teachers, and I just thought this was the best thing since sliced bread. And of course, (laughs) they're going to love my brilliant idea, uh, paying no mention to the fact that I was younger than everyone in the room and had just been there a few years. And what did I know? Uh, But I I stood up and I talked about it with pride. And after I finished the last word, I looked out to just like a room of very frustrated, angry, sort of resentful people who then proceeded to just pepper me with questions of how would this work? And how would, no, this isn't this, and we can't do this, and we can't do this. And it was just really the first time I'd stood in front of a room and tried to convince them through sheer, I don't know, um, I don't don't even know what it, I just like, it's a good idea. Why wouldn't people like it? Um, and it just smacked me in the face that I just had so much to learn about empathy for, for people experiencing or the people that you want to engage in some kind of change that there's just so much more nuance there than I had known in that room. So I left that, <laughs> I left that, I went to my car and I just cried, um, frankly, and I just yeah, share that so that other people who are doing the same thing know how hard and sort of gut-wrenching it can be. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, and then you just sort of get up the next day and keep trying. So. Yeah. Yeah, have it. <laughs> yeah I, I guess somehow it's quite easy to relate to, to your story because it's true that sometimes you think you have the greatest idea ever. And even, you know, in our, in our work and in our job and when even facing clients where you think you have cracked the code and that you're going to change everything. And then when you, you know, share that idea or share this project, um, to other people and you just face utter, like, uh, cluelessness. Yeah. And then you're like, but so why, what did I do wrong? And then you, you know, you just realize that maybe sometimes you're just so into it that you forgot that you need to onboard people and you need to, share more and you need to yeah have people experience it in another way rather than just deliver it to them in just a one-way street i I would say yeah absolutely it's so that really resonates with me it's so easy to get lost in the excitement of a new idea which can sometimes happen if you think of the leadership level a lot of time, the executive leadership team will have offsites to dream up and define a new strategy. And in that 
bubble of leadership, it can feel like, oh yes, we've really got, you know, you've, they've gone through the whole process of realizing something needs to change, considering what it could be, sifting through different possibilities for the future, finding one that they're really excited about. That whole thing is a process. And when they're at the point of feeling so like wrapped up and excited about their new idea to then share and expect that others are at the same point, um, it can be quite jarring because everyone else didn't have that same experience. Uh, So it can be really important for leaders to signal their thoughts on the future, to prototype Mm. in some ways Mm. the future that they're trying to create so that it's a journey with the company and not some grand reveal. Yeah. And then I guess then we go back to what we were seeing earlier about resistance. And then it's just a whole cycle that keeps going and going and going if you don't do it in the appropriate way, I guess. Yeah, it's true. There's definitely scar tissue that builds up in organizations if over and over again change goes poorly. Uh, people, you know, as they, oh, there's always some normal griping, like, oh, our leader, blah, blah, blah. Um, yeah, which is fine. Uh, But when it gets to the point of feeling like employees are unheard, unconsidered, kept out of the kept in the dark, that's when uh, sometimes even uh, I hate to say even like uh, children, maybe it can can feel like nope, I'm not. And I know this because I have a four year old and sometimes she just decides that she doesn't want to listen no matter how good my ideas are. Uh, if I haven't invited her into like, and this is what we're going to be doing next. And now we're going to have dinner and then you're going to take a bath. If I just drag her to the bath, she's not very happy about that. That's fun. I've actually used kind of the metaphor of uh, like getting my kids to try new things to eat has been Mm. kind kind of the same thing. Like there's, there can be a huge resistance about, uh, I don't want to try I don't. I don't like falafel. I, I never tried falafel. I, I don't. I don't want to eat falafel. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then, kind of, maybe just. Well, what if I don't start to talk about it, but just kind of serve it, and then they taste it, and then they can ask, "What is this?" Then, mm. ah, it's falafel. Well, it tastes strange, but it tastes good. Mm. So it's that kind of maneuvering around. <laughs> It's to try to, to get them to do things that uh, they, well, they can be quite persistent if they don't want to brush their teeth or don't want to take a bath or don't want to eat that food. They have kind of made up their mind. Oh, gosh, it's so true. And, and honest, I think some of my favorite business advice I learned from my mother in what she taught me about parenting. She, I remember when I was a child, we would play this game brushing teeth where when I was very small, I would sort of run away and she'd sort of, how do I say this over audio, like curl her finger to say, come here, come here. And then I'd come closer and closer. Then she'd like catch me and then we'd brush teeth and she made it a game. And her parenting advice to me when I was pregnant was always make the right thing fun. Mm -hmm. And I think that's true for you want to make the right thing the easy thing to do the fun thing to do and it's true in organizations as well that 
if you want people to behave in a new way, you need to make behaving in that new way desirable, fun, easy by removing roadblocks for them uh, so that it's not so much that you're forcing people, but that you're giving people the space and the enjoyment of being mm. part of the, a new version of whatever you want them to do. So and parenting can, and business, it's all very intertwined. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be the title of this episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, jumping into something that is uh, um, maybe not more concrete, because I think parenting, well, being a parent is very concrete. Maybe parenting is a very, as an art form that you only grow and get better at through life and more kids, I guess. But if if there is something in um, like in tech or in business today, as you see as kind of the most transforming part, uh, or like um, a way of doing it, or simply just kind of a, a tool or something that that has kind of reason what what is what would you say that is today it can be any of those and it can be a combination of like it can be tech enabling maybe a, another way you you talked about empathy like before is is that something that from a like a technology perspective is something that that you see is, mm. is more what is what is kind of transforming what will what will be the freedom from failure in 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 the future that is kind of changing our businesses or society in that sense yeah if i think from a from a technology and work perspective i've been fascinated by all of the new technologies for remote working or like in our instance, remote podcasting, yeah. that yeah. it's uh, it's quite easy today, you know, with Slack and Trello and uh, a million other technologies, um, how easy it is to do quite a lot of work with people without ever being physically near them. Yeah. And it's... So Nobel, um, my previous company, we were distributed across the world. I've um, partially, like there's some in, in cohorts in different cities, but largely distributed. At SYP, we do have much more of a studio culture where everyone comes together every day. Mm -hmm. But um, Miram is a great example of how much you can do with people distributed across the world. And when there's distributed, offices well for one that's um in there's lots of technologies already that exist to like video conferencing and whatnot but more and more it's possible for people to work at home or to have employees that live in some remote location and so it just strikes me as a change a really important change in the workforce of uh how much of work is human interaction? Mm -hmm. um, and then how much of that do people actually need to fe feel fulfilled? Because mm -hmm. uh, I know I personally struggled with even just working from home a few days a week, some of the loneliness or lack of inspiration 
that mm. comes from not having people co-located. Mm. And it's still something that I think companies are really trying to figure out and that uh, companies either err on the side of, no, just like we've done it for decades, everyone's in the office every day, or which is perfectly fine, uh, especially depending on your industry, or no, anyone can work from anywhere. But we really have yet to crack the code on how to do distributed work and keep keep the humanity. Uh, and there's, there's actually a, a bunch of research too into how like what sort of empathy we lose communicating through technology. Mm, um, and my um, a man, Nick Morgan, who I've worked with as a speaking coach, he has a book called Can You Hear Me?, which is all about communication uh, virtually and what we lose even in, perhaps even in this podcast, the sound of our voices. There's mm, There yeah. are some uh, deeper tones that don't carry across mm. um radio lines that where you lose some of the nuance and I don't, I just, just think it's fascinating in a future of work perspective mm-hmm. to think about how we'll work together. Yeah, definitely. And also in terms of how do you keep the company culture going if everybody is located far from one another and does the word company still has meaning as well? Yeah. Oh, that's a brilliant point. Yes. It's, um, yeah. What does it mean to be a company versus a collective, uh, with lots of companies experimenting with new models of teaming as well, freelancers and, and collective models. And, and so on the bright side, there's lots to experiment with. Yeah. Um, but also there's, uh, there is uh, actually, for me personally, in SYP coming into an office every day, uh, I just really like it. Yeah. It's just really nice to see humans and everyone is different. But um, anyway, it'll be an interesting trend to see how uh, we as a business society sort this all out. Yeah, definitely. How is your desk policy in in where you're at now? Do you have a... Are you hot desking or do you have a place that you go to every day? And how is, how is that working for you? So um, no desks. Our offices, if you or anyone listening has a chance to come by, they're some of my favorite offices that I've ever seen in a company. Nobody has desks. It's, we do have what we call pods for project teams, which are sort of like a big table and whiteboards all around. They are what they sound like a pod area. So if you are working on a client project, then largely you go there every day in your team working space, but everything else is organized by function, by what you need it for. So we have a room called the hideout where you go, which is dead quiet and people won't come and bother you. And, they have these chairs with with tall walls, and you can sort of uh, burrow down in there. We have a cafe area, so if you want to have a more lively discussion with people, you're welcome to go there, and it feels a little bit more casual. We have a um, very uh, uh, 
Office of the Future meditation room as well, if you want to go and just have a few breaths by yourself. So instead of organizing an office space by people, we organize it by the, the functionality of what you want it to do. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting and quite smart. That's something we need to try here. <laughs> yeah, it's a ton of fun. Well, um, next time you are in New York, we'll have to, yeah. we'll have to come that's for a tour. Definitely. Absolutely. Feels like I've um, recovered some resistance with it. Yeah. <laughs> We did not experience it. No, I didn't. I didn't elaborate enough on the yeah. on the wins and not the losses of, of trying yeah. to. No, we just um, we have uh, expanded our office and Ooh. and as part of that uh, uh, bigger space, uh, I think we um, we were just so focused on not being crowded that we maybe didn't elaborate enough on how we actually would use that space, space yeah. in, the, in the best way to kind of enhance the quality of work and so on. So there's been some, some <laughs> discussions here. Well, so fun. Office design is uh, it's one of my favorite sort of work hobbies, if you will, <laughs> to, because there's so much that you can do and so much about designing a space will affect people's behavior of the space that you're in determines how you feel or the, the opportunities you have for working or thinking with other, how much you're around other people, how much you're not. Anyway, yeah. um, uh, if you need a, an extra set of eyes on that, I'm happy. <laughs> so, um, as, as my work hobby, I'd be happy to help. So um, we have spoken about an hour now and uh, it's been extremely interesting always interesting having your thoughts and ideas on topics we have kind of four questions to kind of wrap this up okay. um, so um, I would start up with the first question and that's is there any show on any TV channel any streaming service or anything that you are currently watching and uh, what is what is that? Uh, well, I'm waiting for the next season, but I am a big fan of the marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Have you seen it? <gasps> I love that show as well. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's, much. It's um yeah. It's, I'm glad there's another fan. It's, like she's <laughs> such um for anyone listening who doesn't know it. It's um it's set in the Help me here, Melanie. Fifties, uh, fifties, yes, yeah. mid fifties. A, a housewife on the Upper East Side who discovers her talent and passion for stand-up comedy um, at a time when it is n not at all proper for this Upper East Side mm -hmm. uh, wife and mother to be doing. And she, it's, I just love the character and. Mm -hmm the power of how she sort of comes into her own. So without any spoilers, oh. I highly recommend it. Yeah. And so um, do you, have you been watching Gilmore Girls? Because it's the same uh, creator. No, I haven't. I didn't yeah. even watch it back in the day when I probably should have. 
Yeah, well, I strongly recommend it because it's not, it's totally a different setup and a totally different, uh, you know, uh, uh, scenario and uh, story. But, you know, the kind of sense of humor and the situations are kind of similar. Um, and it's uh, actually Gilmore Girls is in my top five favorite mm-hmm. shows of all time. Oh, fun. All right. So I have. Uh, next on my list while I wait for Mrs. There's Maisel. Like, yeah, and there's like seven seasons, so you would be covered. <laughs> I'll be busy. And so the, the second question is, um, what is the latest app uh, that you've, uh, or latest service that you've recently subscribed to? Oh, let me look on my phone. Uh, quite literally, the answer to this is <laughs> an app called move it for new york city transit um timing that's probably not super fun um you know the other one that i've been using recently not at all business related is an app called mixed tiles which is you it's a way of printing photos and they print onto this um, what do you even call it? Like this foam core almost. And there is adhesive on the back because I hate nothing more than buying a picture frame and nailing stuff into the wall. And it's always a fight with my husband. Is it straight? Is not? So no, move it to the, I don't know. It's just like a big pain. And it's just totally reinvented how I can get photos of my family onto the wall. Uh, and it's just really easy. It's an, an app. So you, it, goes into your photos and you click the ones you want and then they send you these foam core really nicely looking foam core pictures and then you just stick them on and you can re-stick them uh, it's mm. great interesting yeah is there like a product of the future that you're still waiting for yes oh yes I say this with fervor because it is hot in New York and most New York buildings do not have central air. So there was a startup on Kickstarter for the window air conditioner of the future. And it has been waiting for like three years and apparently they're trying to get funding. And I'm enormously frustrated that it hasn't launched. But the window air conditioning industry is just waiting to be disrupted. And I was so hopeful for this company but essentially if you don't have if you don't have window air conditioners in your city it's they're enormously heavy and it always feels like they're going to fall out of the window and kill somebody and they're big and they take up so much window space and you have to install them and uninstall them and it's just begging it's just begging for some kind of reinvention so if anyone hears this (laughs) um please there's millions upon millions of dollars to be made in new york city alone yeah yeah what was the the kickstarter thing what was that kind of separated did they Uh, have a prototype or an an idea on how to do it or was it more that they wanted funding to actually no they had as let's see if i can even get it uh, they actually had this prototype built out and looked really, uh, really nice. Let me see if I can actually find the thing itself. Like it looked so nice that 
Oh, it's called a capsule, K-A-P-S-U-L. And it's real good looking. I was willing to shell out the like $600 or something for it. Um, But yeah, apparently still in development. All right. And the last question is, who or what do you find currently most inspiring? Oh, right now I have enormous admiration for Esther Perel. If you know her, I've been listening to her podcast called Where Shall We Begin? She is uh, originally was a trauma therapist, I believe, who sort of morphed her work into a relationship therapist and a, a sexuality therapist. Now she does a lot of speaking even in the business realm about relationships. And she's just brilliant. So her her podcast, I mentioned, Where Shall We Begin? It's an unedited or, I don't know, probably slightly edited uh, listen into her therapy session with a couple. So you really get the very raw, like listening to two people work through, uh, I don't know, something very you know, critical to their marriage or relationship or family. And she's like, I've learned so much from her, not only about relationships, but also about consulting. And mm. she's one of the, the things I loved most. She said, uh, every couple that walks into the room is telling themselves a story about their relationship. And my job in that first session is to help them leave with a new story. Yeah. And I think the same is true for, I, I think of that all the time working with clients, that clients come in telling them one story about their company, telling themselves one story about their company or their industry. You know, this is where we are, this is where we're going. And if you can help them through a conversation to start to tell a new story of possibility, then it, it sort of frees people up to feel like, there's hope for their company or in her case, your marriage or whatever it is. Uh, but I highly recommend her and her work. Uh, she just never ceases to give me new insights. I actually have a, like a real, real time story from, <clears throat> I had a friend of mine where um, uh, they were having problems and they were getting a divorce and um and he, he didn't want to divorce, so he was uh, he desperately called a, a therapist, and his uh, his wife agreed that in order to get like the happy uh, divorce, that uh, maybe they needed consultation. And they were quite surprised by, I think, the, both the first consultation and the second consultation because she had asked them to kind of sit in front of each other hold each other's hands and look into each other's mm-hmm. eyes and talk about how they felt when they first time met each other and those sorts of things. And it was first at the third consultation that they actually found out that she has made, she had misunderstood the brief. It wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't that they were getting a divorce and they were going to leave each other. It was actually that uh, she thought that they were, yeah, they were in love and uh, they ne- just needed to, to kind of find that extra spark again, yeah. which ended up them actually finding that spark and not getting a divorce. Mm-hmm. Wow. So it was, it was, um, 
fantastic story from real life. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Well, what talent that therapist <laughs> must have had. <laughs> Talk what? about out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, just amazing. Yeah. Bree, it's been fantastic talking to you. Uh, Likewise. We would love visiting you yeah. if and when we are in New York. And if you're ever in, in, in Europe, back in Europe, or have the chance and opportunity to, to take a, a trip to Stockholm, then... Uh, you are the first people I will call. Fantastic. Great. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you both. This has been a ton of fun, and I just really enjoyed the conversation. And thank you for having me. Thank you, Bree. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you like Miram Talks, please rate us on Apple Podcast and spread the word. Miram Stockholm is a creative digital agency and a part of Wunderman Thompson VPP. We create meaningful experiences that make people and brands grow. For more information about our work, please follow MiramAgencies.com on Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Until next time.